As we begin this morning, I want to have you think back to the last wedding that uh, you attended. Might have been right here, might have been somewhere else, but uh, think about think about the last wedding you were at. Um, think about the bride, the groom, the the decorations, uh, people all dressed up nice. Um, think, think about about the customs, the traditions that that were observed. Uh, think about j- just the joy of the day, right? The joyful occasion, the the excitement for the future of the newlyweds that are being married that day. Well, if, if the wedding that, that you attended or that you're thinking of was between uh, two Christians, and if it was, if the ceremony was a Christian ceremony, then odds are the word covenant was used at some point to describe marriage. Now, the, the word covenant isn't one that's too commonly used in our culture today, but when it comes to a Christian wedding, uh, it's much more likely to be spoken. I would say odds are it will be spoken at some point in that wedding. And the word covenant is, is a word that is, it is thick with biblical meaning. Throughout the, the pages of scripture, we see God making covenants with his people. And some scholars would even divide up the Bible into sections based upon the covenant that is in effect at that point in Scripture. So so it's probably fitting that the word is used often today in the context of a wedding. Because in the Bible, God's covenants are typically spoken of and presented in the context of love. Or maybe another way to say it, God often shows love to his people through his entering into covenant with them. You see it over and over again. And and, and I'll show you what I mean. We can can quickly look at some of the covenants God made in the Old Testament, and, and we can see this theme playing out. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 19... God had just powerfully brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. They'd traveled through the Red Sea by way of God parting the waters, and they had journeyed to Mount Sinai. And it was at Mount Sinai that God showed his love to his people by entering into a covenant with them. It's a a setting that is meant to reflect a wedding ceremony. So I'll read for you Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 4. It says, and this is God talking, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So after these words were spoken, the the people then spent two days preparing to meet with God at Sinai, much like a bride might do in preparing for her wedding. And, And while the word love is not used in this passage, there's no doubt that God's love is at the heart of what is taking place. And 
even when, when God speaks of this event in Ezekiel 16, he, he referred to Israel as being at the age for love. He, he then symbolically spread the corner of his garment over them. That, that was a cultural custom signifying a marriage proposal. God would not have done that. He would not have chosen a people for himself if he did not love them. His covenant with them was tied to his love for them. So we have this scene that took place at Sinai, and this was with the first generation of people who came out of Egypt. As the second generation prepared to enter into the promised land, Moses reminded them of who they were and the covenant that had been set up between God and the people. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is what we find there, verse 6. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So Moses is reminding the people that God has set his love upon them. God is faithful to, his, to keep his covenant. He's faithful in his steadfast love. And he even warned the people right before that passage that they were not to enter into a covenant with any of the other nations already in the promised land. He warned them that those people, those nations would, would lead them astray. Uh, the only covenant that would be grounded in steadfast love was the one that God made with them. And so they are reminded of that. Further along in Israel's history, at the dedication of the Temple of Solomon, Solomon speaks these words about God's love for the people. This is Solomon chapter 6. It says, O, o Lord, God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. So again, we see that God is a God of steadfast love who showed his love to his people and specifically through his covenant keeping with them. Solomon is, as Solomon stated, there's no God like you. And that's true in part because of the love of God and God showing that love to his people. One final passage I want to draw, draw our attention to is Isaiah chapter 55. At the beginning of this chapter, the call to experience God's love and to enter into covenant with him is expanded. So at the beginning of Isaiah 55, we read this. God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. So that, that passage, the chapter starts, come everyone who thirsts. So the covenant is expanded. It's extended there to all people. And, and, and the description of it being an everlasting covenant looks ahead. It looks ahead to something even greater and even, even more expansive than the previous covenants that, that God has made with his people. Really, it looks ahead to what is fulfilled and instituted in our passage for today regarding the Last Supper. So that's going to be our, our focus for today. Now, now last week, uh, as we observed Kay and Katrina being baptized, I stated that I was switching two passages around and I was preaching them out of chronological order. So, so while we talked last week about Jesus in Gethsemane, this week, we, we back up just a little bit chronologically, and, and we're, we're talking about the meal Jesus ate with his disciples just before they went out to the Mount of Olives and out to Gethsemane. And, and we're going to end our time this morning in Matthew's gospel, where, where we've been so often. But, but first, we're going to look at John chapter 13. So I would encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. John chapter 13. It's page 900 in the Pew Bibles. John shares a scene that took place in that upper room that the other three gospel writers don't share with us. And, and that scene is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Now, I don't believe that we are, that we are to see this specific act as part of the new covenant enacted by Jesus at his death in the same way that we are to understand the bread and the cup. That's why foot washing is not a regular part of our participation in communion. Now, now there's some some church traditions that that will have an annual foot washing service on on Monday, Thursday, or on Good Friday. Um, And that's usually done to, uh, to recognize the act of love that Jesus displayed and called his followers to emulate. But, but let's, let's look together at this display of love. Um, so again, John chapter 13, and I'll start by reading in verse 1. Such a powerful scene here. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, 
If I do not wash your feet, if, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. So right off the bat in this chapter, we're given kind of an inside look at Jesus' motivations and his emotions regarding what's taking place here. His love for his disciples was what led him to take this humble position of a servant and wash their feet. It's been, and it, it's been well stated by, by many pastors and scholars that this was not the customary position for a rabbi, for a teacher to take. Uh, the clothing, the, the posture, the, the touching of dirty feet, those were, those were all things that were considered demeaning, humiliating even. Those were things that a person would not willingly do unless they were driven by love. And what makes this perhaps even more incredible is we've got to think about who's in attendance here. This is Jesus' 12 disciples, and it's all 12 disciples. So that means Judas is in attendance that evening. I mean, I think this prompts us to consider the incredible breadth of the love of Jesus displayed in this scene. I mean, John makes it clear to us that at this point, Judas has already decided to betray Jesus. He knew what he was going to do, and Jesus was fully aware of it. Yet, even so, we are not given any indication that when Jesus came to Judas, he skipped over him and didn't wash Judas' feet. I mean, Jesus showed love in this way to, to the person, to the friend, who would betray him in just a few hours. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever fully gotten my mind around that. I mean, I, I know it happened, I believe it happened, and I know it's incredible, but to, to really grasp that, man, it's hard to have a category to put that kind of loving act into. I mean, Jesus was completely sinless, so he had never wronged Judas in any way. And I'm not saying that that would have justified Judas' betrayal if he had. It, it, it just makes... Jesus' display of love all the more incredible. I mean, Jesus' love extended far enough to cover even the one who at that moment was preparing to and had decided to betray him. I mean, wow, right? And we don't even have to keep the spotlight on Judas. Peter was there. Peter would go on to deny three times that he even knew Jesus. We'll get into that next week. So Peter is there. And, and the gospel writers tell us that by the end of the night, 
all the disciples will have fled from the garden in fear as Jesus was arrested. So I'd say what that means is there's not a person at that meal in the upper room who deserved to have Jesus wash his feet. Because in just a matter of hours, they were all going to fail Jesus quite vividly. And I think about that and it's like, well, I guess I would be in good company sitting with those 12 if I happened to be there that night. I mean, I, I too am unworthy to have Jesus show me love in that way. And all of us, right? That's true of all of us. If you've ever taken part in a uh, foot washing service before, you may have felt a bit of discomfort as, as that unfolded. Whether you were having your feet washed or, or washing someone else's feet, but maybe especially having your own feet washed. And that was just from another sinner washing your feet. Imagine what you and I would feel if it were Jesus himself doing the washing. I mean, Peter felt enough discomfort that, that he was initially hesitant. And <laughs> Jesus, I'm not going to allow you to do this. Right? And, man, and I just wonder, like, what, what would Judas have been thinking in all that? I mean, to, to have been present, to watch the body language of Judas as Jesus washed his feet. Like, I just, I just wonder how uncomfortable that must have been for Judas to have experienced that kind of thing. But all that to say that the breadth of Jesus' love was on full display in that upper room that evening. And again, th th this act was not a direct implementation of the new covenant, but we'll get to that very soon, right? This act was, was a clear display of the love which undergirded the new covenant that Jesus would, would soon establish. In, in those moments where, where we've failed someone or, or maybe we've failed God directly, it can be so tempting to entertain this question, does God really love me? I mean, looking at what I've just done, how I treated someone, how I treated God, walked, walked away from God, disobeyed God, does God really love me? And Satan is quite skilled at bringing that question to our mind at opportune times. So maybe, maybe that's a question you've only asked once or twice in your life. Maybe it's a question that presses on you daily. Does God really love me? And I imagine we know the right answer to that question, don't we? I mean, think about John 3.16, God so loved the world. I mean, it, it's, it's one thing to say and believe that God loves the world. That is absolutely true. But I think it hits at a different level to say and believe that God loves me, right? God loves you. Like, yes, it's true, God loves the world, but to, but to personalize that, right? To think about the implication of that, that God loves me, God loves you. God does love you deeply. And if, you've, if, if you, if I will open ourselves to that love, he will be glad to show it to us. 
You know, just as Jesus went around the entire room that evening and showed his love to each person who was present there at the meal, he would do the exact same thing to each of us this morning. There's not a person in this room who Jesus would skip because he doesn't have a love for us. Jesus would look you in the eyes and wash your feet just like he did Peter, Judas, James, Matthew, Philip, all the disciples that were there. So I encourage all of us to open ourselves to that love. It's not something that he will force us to accept. That wouldn't truly be love, I believe, if he forced that upon us. I mean, when Jesus came to Peter, it seems that if Peter had kept pushing back, that Jesus would have gone by, not because he didn't want to wash Peter's feet, but because Peter wouldn't allow him to. Jesus didn't wash his feet until Peter said, you know, not, not so many words, okay, like, you can wash my feet, Jesus. So let's allow the breadth of God's love to overwhelm us this morning. And it, it, it perhaps can't be said any any better than, than the song that so many of us learned from our parents and then taught to our own children. That simple song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. I mean, it's a, it's a simple song, right? We might be tempted to think of that as a children's song, but that's a, that's a song for everybody. So let's, let's sing it real quick. I'll start it off. Please join in. Okay, this is not going to be a solo, right? But let's just sing that simple yet powerful song, okay? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Good truth in that song. One of the places the Bible tells us so is in that story with Jesus washing all the disciples' feet. Shows us the breadth of his love. What happened next that evening shows us the depth of his love. So I'd go ahead and turn to Matthew now, chapter 26. We're going to read about how the love of Jesus is shown by instituting this new eternal covenant with all who would receive him. Remember, Jesus, or God's love is, is, is shown through covenant. So Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he, said, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day 
when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So at this point in, in the history of God's people, for, for centuries, they'd been gathering together on the Passover to remember how God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. The plagues which led to their release were punctuated by that final plague, the death of firstborn males. But rather than take the lives of all firstborn males, God lovingly provided for salvation through the blood of a sacrificed lamb that was spread across the doorpost of the house. So in essence, there was a covenant made there between God and the people on that night where he pledged to pass over the house if they would cover their doorpost with the blood of a lamb. It, it, what the Jesus and the disciples and and all Jews were participating in that night was an annual meal of remembrance. But during that meal, Jesus instituted a new covenant that went much farther than a lamb and firstborn sons. The salvation that was offered to firstborn sons was expanded, extended to include everyone. Anyone was able to participate in that covenant. Again, we, we think about the breadth of God's love. There isn't a person to whom that love isn't available. And then in addition, the blood shed for that salvation was not that of a lamb from the flock, but of the lamb of God. <clears throat> Jesus himself, as he spoke, would, would give his own body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. The, the washing of feet, which Jesus had done before, was just a foretaste of the cleansing that, that would come through his death on the cross. So the depth of God's love, the, the lengths to which he is willing to go to provide salvation, is equally as incredible as the breadth of his love. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 is... Um, it's always been a verse that rises to the top when I think of my favorite Bible verses. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That was the, the version I memorized it in as a kid. And I think about that too, and, and there, there's, a, there's another song, there's a hymn called The Love of God, which attempts to capture the depth of God's love, right? There's just something about God's love that has captivated songwriters through the centuries, and rightly so. In verse 3 of that song, it talks about uh, filling the ocean with ink and filling the sky with parchment. It, it imagines every stalk on earth a quill and every person a scribe. But even with all that ink and all that parchment and, and all those quills and all those scribes, God's love is so deep that it still cannot be contained. It's measureless, according to the chorus of that song. That stands in such stark contrast to the love of sinful humans, does it not? And we might see that imperfect love we might see it within our families. We might see it among our friends. We might see it within our own hearts. If I were to stand up here and tell you that my own love has led me to never fail another person, I'd be lying through my teeth. 
And at times I've unintentionally displayed something less than the love of God. At other times I've intentionally displayed something less than the love of God. I'm in desperate need of this deep love of God shown through the new covenant, through Jesus' death upon the cross. And, and I'll go out on a limb and say that you are in desperate need of that love too. And Jesus desires to show it to us. He does. He desires to be in covenant relationship with us in order that he might fully show us his love. There's, there's times where I've stood up here and, and, and we've gone through a, a passage together that was theologically complex. Concepts that just make our brain hurt when we try to intellectually grasp what is going on. And, and the love of God might be that way in a little bit, but at its core, it's, it's, it's such a simple thing. In fact, it's so simple that, that many write it off as foolishness. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. Paul writes about how Jesus and his loving sacrifice on the cross is foolishness to the world. The, the wisdom of this world cannot accept Jesus and his love as anything but foolishness. And Paul also says that, that what is considered the foolishness of God is actually wiser than men. It might not make logical or, or rational sense that Jesus would love someone like me or someone like you, but he does. And this meal, which, which we will eat together, is a regular reminder of that reality. The Passover meal was a reminder of God's love for his people, Israel. This meal that believers have been eating together for 2,000 years is a reminder of God's love for all who come to him and receive him. So the elders are going to come forward. And as we think about this meal, I, if you think about like Thanksgiving Day or, or your birthday, you've, you've maybe been blessed to eat a meal in which someone put a lot of time and effort and love into preparing that meal for you. And in, in a way, that meal is a tangible display of their love for you. Well, the bread and, and the juice on the table today is similar to that, but to the highest degree possible. This is a tangible expression of the loving sacrifice Jesus made upon the cross. There's, there's no higher or deeper act of love that God could have done than to give of himself in order that we might be forgiven of our sins and set free from the punishment those sins deserve. You know, as long as I'm quoting songs this morning, there's another famous song. This one's a country song, which I'm not going to sing for sure, but that song called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. Again, I'm not going to sing it, but God created us in such a way that we search for love. We do. We search for real love, but it can be so tempting to turn to the wrong places to find that real love. And so, if you have looked or are looking for 
that love in those wrong places, I encourage you to stop your looking this morning and come to the right place where that true, real love is found. Come to the table. The love of Jesus shown through his sacrifice on the cross is what you and I need. And he desires to not only show us the full extent of his love, but for us to humbly receive his love as well. So as we take communion this morning, you don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion. You only need to be willing to humbly accept Jesus and his love poured out for you through his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. So let's participate together in this, in this meal that is prepared with such love for us.